Well, this is actually our second week in this passage. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, before I went on vacation, you might remember, uh, we got two-thirds of the way through the sermon. But of course, the last third of the sermon was actually the longest part of the sermon. So this is just a really, really, really big passage. And as I'm preaching through the book of Revelation, we're trying to do, trying to both do justice to everything that we see while not spending 18 years in the book of Revelation. We're already going to be here for like eight months, so we want to make some progress at the same time. Why am I saying this? I'm not going to answer all of your questions this morning. Uh, that's actually not a passive-aggressive way of not answering the why am I saying this question. It's uh, just honest. There's going to be stuff we don't get to here. And... Uh, I'm going to try and stick to the most important things, the most central things that we see. So let me, let me remind us of where we've been in Revelation, because this is going to help. See, Christians are being assured in the book of Revelation that although they're suffering, God's plan is right on target. God is still king, even though the powers of the world seem to be winning. God is demonstrating that the powers opposed to him are completely wicked. That's part of the meaning of the chaos and, and the judgment on earth. But they will be judged, and no matter what happens, God will deliver his people. But in chapter 12, Revelation shows us that there's more going on than meets the eye. God's people are not simply innocent bystanders in the battle between heaven and earth. If you remember from last week, this is really what we're getting at, where Satan is waiting as the woman is getting ready to give birth so that he can eat what comes out. And this is a picture, of course, of Jesus. The God's people are represented, both God's people before Jesus and after Jesus are represented by the woman in labor. And what, what do you think? A woman in labor, can she protect herself or protect anybody? No, obviously not. This is a place where the church is not powerful to resist Satan, and yet God still delivers Jesus. God, or Jesus is still able to do everything that he needs to do. Satan is not able to stop it. God's plan to redeem the earth and restore it to all that it was ever made to be is taking place through his people, through Israel through the church, through you and I here in Lemon Cove. And that's a big thing. That's a big deal. That's why, that's why Satan hates the church. Because it's through the church that God's rescue is coming to the world. That's why the church is at the same time such a glorious place of hope and family and goodness and wonder and such a catastrophe burning down before the rest of the world as Satan attacks and attacks and attacks. And while certain battles are lost and certain people fall, the church endures. Uh, there was a study recently put out. I think that uh, it was uh, one of the big accounting firms did this study. They must have a statistics arm or something along those lines. Uh, the name of the firm escapes me at the moment. But they were trying to figure out why are people not going to church? And uh, an, an, a Christian author wrote a book about this, and, and he said, well, the big reason people aren't going to church, it's not because churches require too much out of them, but because they require too little out of their people. Churches say, hey, you know, just come and, and do whatever you want. Like, be as connected as you want to be. If you want to be a member, like, we'll just kind of, like, make you jump a hoop and then you're done. Uh, but the author of this book saying that's actually not why people aren't coming to church. People aren't coming to church not because churches are asking too much, but because churches aren't asking enough to make it worth it. 
Because they're saying, just add this to your schedule, add this to your calendar, add this to your life like you would add anything else. Which sends the message of, this isn't more significant than anything else in your life. But what's the picture here in, in Revelation? The picture here is that it's through the church that things like the rescue of the world come. What we're doing here this morning, worshiping together, it's not an optional part of our life. Like, if you like it, do it, or if you don't like it, don't do it. It's actually, this is where heaven and earth are meeting for our world, when God's people gather together in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a significant thing that we do. By the way, this is not a make sure you come to church more often message. It's just kind of working out that way for the moment. But where we're really going here is that this is a place, and we are a people, of significance. And this place and what we do together are going to be the things that live into eternity more than anything else. Which means that this relationship we have with each other is more important than any other. I had a professor in seminary who wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family. And what he did is he looked at why did, why did the apostles, when they wrote their letters in the New Testament, call people brother and sister? Why'd they do that? And he determined it was because that was the very closest relationship people had in the ancient world. Now, what Paul's not saying is make sure everyone in the church is your best friend. Um, I don't know if you've, all, all of us here have, have or have had some sort of family. And the truth is that your brothers and sisters may not have been your best friends. <laughs> Why are you guys laughing so much at that? I didn't expect that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, family is hard, isn't it? But those people in your lives are the people that almost all the time we're going to show up for because they are family. And that's what he's getting at here. The church is a significant thing. But there's a problem. Because the church is significant in God's program, Satan wants to tear it down. And how can we survive? How can the woman in labor survive when we are helpless against his power, when we are not nearly as cunning and wise as the enemy? We don't have the resources on our own to do this. I think that's what this passage is telling us about. See, the first reason we don't have to fear the great enemy is because God is protecting us. Now, that may sound trite, Right? It's kind of a general sort of statement. Well, you know, God is protecting us. Okay, Ian, show me evidence. Right? Show me how this is happening. Well, first, let's look at the text and see what it says. In Revelation chapter 12, I'm going to read verse 6 and then verses 14 to 16. It says, And the woman and the church fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. You may have noticed uh, Debbie was saying at the end of the passage, it says that, well, I'll just keep reading because you'll hear it again. And it says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Right? Time, times, and half a time. Right? to make it visual, three and a half years, in other words, which is 1,260 days, approximately. We're describing the same thing here. It says that there is a place that God has prepared for his people to be nourished 
as Satan does his best to kill and destroy. There is a sanctuary divinely prepared for God's people for the entire age of the church. We know that this sanctuary doesn't mean that the church is free from all harm. Right? Our, our, our very experience will tell us that. And the book of Revelation is written to churches that are suffering and even dying for their faith. But what seems to be in mind is that our place of rest and our nourishment is stronger and is more than anything that Satan can do. In Psalm 121, actually I'm going to read both of these. I'm already running low on time, but I think these are both important. From Psalm 61, hear my cry, O Lord, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me live in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. What a picture that is, where the sun can't get you, where the cold is kept out, that bird, those birds in their nests, where the predators can't find you the God who holds us in the shelter of his wings. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This, this would be good if it was true. Right, so how do we take advantage of this? We have to understand that our place of rest is in God himself, under whose wings we shelter and who hears us when we cry out. Because when we do this, when we recognize that God's really our rest, and God's really our shelter, and God's really our protection, well, it's going to change the way we go through our lives. Think about how what normally happens, I think, in most of our hearts and our minds when something hard comes along. See, we, we start to look to something to help us, don't we? Where am I going to get the resources to go through with this? And some of us, we dig deep inside, right? We're like, I just got to keep going no matter what the cost. I got to keep going. I got to draw on my strength until it's all gone. And most of us, that works for a little while, doesn't it? Works for a little while. And then we meet something stronger than us. And then we break. See, we... We go someplace to find that rest and safety and security. We might start with our own strength. Or maybe we run to our family and our friends. We say, oh, I need you to save me from this. I'm, I'm so sad or I'm so frustrated or I'm out of money and whatever it is. And we keep going back to that well and we keep going back to that well. And, and this is a wonderful thing. God really has, by the way, given us good strength to use. He's given us good people in our lives who are, are there not just to share fun times with, but to share hard times with. These are good things. But what if that's actually the whole source of our help? What will happen to those people that you keep going back to over and over and over again? They will run dry. They will. They will run 
out of the ability to help you and encourage you. And you know it. Because sometimes you've been that person who ran dry and you said, I can't help you anymore. And you know it because sometimes you have come across people and they say, you know what, I just can't deal with that right now. And you know it because some of the people that you have counted on most in your life have passed away and they are gone and their resources aren't here any longer. And you say again with Psalm 121, where will my help come from in the midst of all of this? See, God has given us, there's more I could talk about. God has given us these things, and he does use them to help us, family and community and and friends and, and money and strength and all these other things with which we can solve at least some problems. But it's when we when we start saying that's my ultimate source of help that now we've made an idol out of it. Uh, I call my dad all the time. I ask him for advice. I ask him for, for help. And, uh, and he is such a gift to me. And I've called on a number of you at different times for advice and help. And you have been such a gift to me. And I have a wonderful family in my wife and in my children and my in-laws who have done more for me than I can possibly even ever think to repay. There are all of these good gifts in my life. But I'd be mistaken if I looked at them and I said, that's really where my help is coming from. Because where did my family come from in the first place? It came from the God who made them. Feel free to participate, by the way. I guarantee these answers are going to be easy. Where did my skills and gifts and strength come from? They came from God. Where did... Uh, where did whatever money or resource or stick to and all these things come from? They came from God. I might have gone out and done some work. There might be some amount of fairness in the wage that I was paid. But with whose skills did I work to get that work done? Who created the world in which I work? This all came from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights, who never changes and so never stops giving good gifts. What an amazing promise out of the book of James. See, what if instead of going to all of those places and saying, if you don't help me, I'm going to die. We said, God, if you don't help me, I'm going to die. God, thank you for, yes, providing to me my family and my friends. Thank you for that check in the mail that I had no idea was coming. Thank you, God, for all of these other things. But, But what if at the end of the day, the first place we went was God? And we saw everything else that came to us as part of his provision. See, here's, here's what that would do. Here's what that would do. You ever feel bad asking someone else for help? Right? I'm expecting we're unanimous on this right now, unless you've never asked for help before, in which case I both salute you and tell you you are an arrogant, arrogant person. <laughs> we're afraid to ask for help because we're afraid it'll run out. But if we're looking to God to provide our help, we will be more able and more willing to accept it from his people, recognizing that he provided them. Instead of demanding of them, we give folks the opportunity to serve as God has commissioned. And then when that help is not enough, or it runs out or it goes away, we know God will provide in a different way. It gives us the safety and security. It's God who does this for us. 
See, God gives us a place of safety, but he does something else. He also gives the church freedom from Satan's great power, his greatest power of all. If you remember, the name Satan means in Hebrew the accuser, essentially. In Greek, diabolos, devil, means the slanderer, among other things. And this is Satan's great power. Do you remember when we most clearly meet Satan in the whole Bible is in the book of Job. And Satan appears in heaven and God says to him, hey, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been roaming all over the earth. And God said, well, did you see Job on your Romans? Because he's amazing. And Satan says, oh, I saw him, but he only loves you because you give him so much. What's that? That's accusation. That's slander. That's what Satan does. But did you catch what happens? War breaks out in heaven, Revelation chapter 12. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon wasn't strong enough, and they lost, and they're not there anymore. So he can no longer accuse. He will to you. You know those voices in your, in your heart and in your mind that say, oh, you are so ugly. Oh, you are no good. Oh, you have done such terrible things you can never be forgiven. That's Satan speaking to you, but Satan can't speak before God anymore. And God has spoken over you if you belong to him in Jesus Christ. And he has said to you, you are my children, not because of what you've done, but because of what I have done for you. And all of your sin I have taken away, and it's paid for. And in Instead, I've taken all the righteousness of my only son, Jesus Christ, who is perfect, who is not only human, but God himself, and I have given you that righteousness. So don't you believe any accusation or any slander that Satan hurls at you because it is a lie and it is going to be damned to hell. And that is exactly the right language we ought to use about it. I love C.S. Lewis. Uh, he once, in his Mere Christianity, it was originally a radio address, and he said at one point in the book, stop talking damned nonsense in a similar sort of way. And a woman wrote into him and said, oh, your language is so horrible. And Lewis said, no, I said what I meant to say. That is the appropriate use of that word. And when Satan comes along and he begins to lie to you and slander you and accuse you, you know, you've got that place of rest because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You say, that's not true. That's a damned lie, Satan, and you know it. And I belong to Jesus Christ, and you leave me alone. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's the first third of the sermon. I'm out of time. Uh, so we're going to come back to the next two points next week.